loving Father, we do indeed praise you uh, that your Son Jesus uh, is Lord and King and Saviour. And we pray that as we open up the book of Leviticus, uh, you would show us again and again the glory and wonder that is your Son Jesus. And that we would respond with uh, repentance and great faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As you uh, arrived this morning, you should have received uh, the news sheet, a sermon outline, and a brief overview of Leviticus. Now, I'm going to ask you to keep the overview with you uh, in the weeks ahead as we work through Leviticus. That's going to be a help to us uh, later on. Uh, So please have a look at that. And if you read the first seven chapters of Leviticus, well done. Some of you did. Some of you were horrified. Some of you couldn't even finish your dinner last night. Um, uh, That's such as the nature of Leviticus. But uh, I promise you, it will be worth our while together. Uh, Now, uh, let me start off by sharing a little bit about my first full-time job. Uh, I had, I worked, some of you know, I worked in a mail room uh, in a a large trustee company in Hunter Street, Sydney, and I knew that the building, knew the building inside out, all seven floors and the vaults, the stairwells and everything in between. Uh, And you're exposed to all levels of management just about. Some management, some managers had offices that were ridiculous in size. They weren't much smaller than this space here. Some managers were really warm and friendly and others weren't so much. And I even recall uh, being in trouble once for sliding an envelope under a door while a meeting was in progress. Apparently that's really, really unprofessional. These managers had enormous power to hire and to fire. And they were responsible for billions, billions of dollars of funds and investments. And of course, as the mailroom kid, my job was to get in and out with a minimum of fuss as quickly as possible. But there was part of the top floor that was a different story altogether. It was completely off limits with no access at all. And this was the space of the CEO and sometimes the board. And there was a big wall of division in this space. And their secretaries, well, they were like sentinels. You couldn't get past them. And I never, ever entered into this space because only ultra-special people could do that, right? Certainly not members of the mailroom. And so if you valued your job, taking liberties was a really, really bad idea. I mean, it would be unthinkable that anybody would rock into the office of the CEO and put their feet up on the table and lean back in a chair and go, hey boss, how's your weekend body? How's the family? How you doing, all right? Unthinkable, you wouldn't do that. That would be, that you'd lose your job for sure. Now that's a picture from the corporate world. But we're in Northern New South Wales, aren't we? And, and I don't know what you can compare it to here. You can help me with that later. Maybe I should have had that as a Bible study question. Maybe we might compare it with meeting a bank manager. Maybe or or being summoned by the bishop. 
Maybe we might compare this idea of uh, space with someone having a bath and walking in on them. Don't connect the bishop with the bath. That's, that's bad. But I, I don't know. Some places, here's the point, some places are just off limits, right? You, you just don't go there. And the question for us as we wrestle with the book of Leviticus is can anyone just bowl into the presence of God? Can anyone just bowl into the presence of God? Leviticus is dangerous for Australian people because there's a danger of Australians taking God for granted where we presume upon God. Apparently, you can invent God to suit yourself. I mean, you know how it goes. I like to think of God as dot, 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 dot. Maybe you've heard that. And in our world, you really can believe whatever you like. That's right, isn't it? But of course, don't even, don't even think of telling people otherwise. It's curious as we think about uh, the nature of God. How would we feel if we were listening to people talking about us? They were talking about you, actually. And as you listen to this conversation, they're talking about you, and you're thinking, that's, that's not actually me. That's not actually who I am. And it turns out, well, they don't even know you. And these people, they've decided for themselves what you like and what you don't like. They've decided for themselves what you feel and what you don't feel without even asking you. And we can make the same mistake with God. And so Leviticus is going to be a book that turns all that sort of thinking about God, it's going to turn it upside down. Leviticus is a book where God says, this is what I'm like. This is what I am like. And this is what you need to be like. God lives in their midst. The very presence of God in the camp. And here is the framework for how it's going to work. Here is what I'm like. And if you want to approach me, here are the terms. This is how you wipe your feet at the door. This is how you're going to stand. This is what you're going to eat. This is how you're going to sit. That's Leviticus. And it's because God says, I am God. And you, Israel, Israel, you need to set what you are like according to what I am like. And so, hence, the great statement, the great command from Leviticus. Be holy because you know it. I am holy. Now, we need to remember where we're up to in the context of God's story. Uh, Israel are between Egypt and the Exodus. We remember the Exodus, where God has delivered his people from the hands of Pharaoh. We remember words like they've been redeemed, uh, they've been saved, they experience redemption, salvation. We remember all of those wonderful stories from Exodus, but we also remember how it finishes. It finishes with this difficult scenario with God on the mountain, 
Israel here, Israel at the bottom. And remember what Israelites were like when God spoke? They were like, please make him stop. And this speaks to the problem here. How, how is God and the Israelite going to get on in the same camp, let alone the mountain thing? So again, how do you approach a holy God? How do you live with him? Well, of course, you don't just swagger in and say, hey, God, let's party. You don't bowl in and put your feet up on the desk, so to speak. You approach a holy God on his terms. And so in the first six chapters, you will see there, if you have your Bibles open, all those headings. You see that when you come before God, you bring an offering. You come to God, you bring a sacrifice. And they're listed there. So chapter one, there's a burnt offering. Chapter two, there's a grain offering. Chapter three, there's a fellowship offering. Chapter four, there's a sin offering. Different options for different occasions. Different horses for different courses. Even sacrifices for sins that you didn't know that you committed, all of the bases are covered. But let's look closely at the burnt offering as an example. So, uh, And as we do, try and imagine this as you. So this is the Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Try and imagine... This is you, 4,000 years ago, you're an Israelite, you've got your herd, maybe 20 cattle mill around your tent at night, and what are they doing there? You know you know how it goes. They get milked every other morning, and you realise it's time to make an offering with God, because this is about your relationship with Him, this is about fellowship with Him as a saved person. And what happens in Leviticus 1? You're there, you've arrived, verse 3, you're going to make a burnt offering, and that means bringing one of your cattle, but not the mangy one, not the one with a limp. It's got to be your best one. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to make, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of the meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. It's not hard for us to think about beasts. Uh, when I was in Baraba, a farmer was showing me his heifers. Beautiful wet noses, big brown eyes. farmer was trying to convince me that uh, the heifers actually liked him a lot, that there was more to their relationship apart from being fed. Of course, that had nothing to do with all the feed on the back of the ute. Um, I heard of another breeder who sells top quality bulls each year, but one year there was just this one bull, just this one bull that, bull that really, really caught his eye. And he, the story goes, he would make his cup of coffee and he would go out into the paddock and gaze upon the wonder and awesomeness of this young bull, such was its potential. It would make his day every day. Some bull, right? And here in Leviticus 1, well, we're talking about your best bull. Here it needs to be a male and it's without defect. It's the one you've handpicked as your best breeder for next year. And to be sure, this is the one that you least want to part with. And can you imagine it? Remember, we're imagining this. You bring your best bull to the tent of the meeting 
to the front flaps of the tent. Aaron, the high priest, is there. His boys are there too. And they start telling you what to do. And maybe they tell you something that you hadn't expected. Can you see it in verse 4? Put your hands on its head. Oh, so you do. And as you do, what do you think is taking place at that point as you put your hands upon the head of this beast? This beast that you're very fond of. Isn't it like you're saying, you and me, all my sin, everything I've ever done, I'm laying it all on you. Isn't this the way of saying this bull is my substitute? And then the priests, because they're really helpful, they're going to give you a bronze-bladed knife. Here you go. It's yours to use, and you cut the bull's throat. (coughs) And it falls to the ground with a thump and a slump. And make no mistake, blood is gushing. And Aaron's sons get a bowl full of each, bowl full each of blood, and they're sprinkling it around the sides of the altar, and they're sprinkling blood at the front of the tent. And there's brownie splatter all over the place from previous sacrifices. Can you imagine the sounds? Can you imagine the smell? And you skin the burnt offering, because that's what you're told to do. And then you cut it into pieces, because that's what you're told to do. And what are the priests doing? They're lighting fires on the altar. They're having carefully washed different pieces there to arrange it on the fire to be burnt up. And I wonder, as you use your imagination this morning, can you see it? You choose your best. You bring your best. You put your hands on it. You kill it. You cut it, you sprinkle blood, and then they burn it. And according to verse 4, when you do that, God accepts it. You two, you and God, you're doing fellowship together. And you're in a relationship together. See again verse 4. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it's going to be accepted on his behalf to make to make what? Atonement. We know that word atonement. It's a short way of saying at one moment. It's going to make you at one with God. So somehow your best animal putting your sins on its head and killing it, somehow that's going to make atonement for your life. Somehow that's going to make you one with God. Somehow it's taking the place of your life in a very symbolic way, which the Holy God says, I accept. We're cool. Somehow a person can enjoy being in God's presence. Without fear now, and note that God enjoys it too. The pleasing aroma. We love the smell of a cooked steak, don't we? God and the worshipper 
are in fellowship and they're happy. And notice God's holiness that the same God of Sinai who Israel said, please stop making him speak. God's holiness is not a problem here. Not for the worshipper, otherwise he'd be dead. And the worshipper's sin, well, the offering and the fragrance has covered it for now. It's like it doesn't exist as God is pleased. So I ask you again, can you see the logic of God here? You see that God is a holy God. And that is something that should fill us with awe and even dread. Leviticus reminds us it's not easy to approach a holy God. That it is complicated. It is problematic. And as our Israelite approaches God, his sin is before him and it must be reckoned with as he comes into, the, into God's presence. How much gravity would you feel for the impact of your sin as you cut the animal's throat? How much responsibility would you bear? And guilt, how much guilt would you feel? Wouldn't you be thinking, dang it, my sin is so expensive. My sin is so expensive. My favourite bull. And then we ask, well, we're the reader today. Here at St Augustine's in Varel. How is our sin reckoned? How do we think our sin is reckoned? Is it through blood and sacrifice? Priests? Barbecue? All that? And because that happens, we can be one with God. Our sins are atoned for, covered over. God's holiness upheld. And his justice is served. Now here's the question. Does the beast pay the price of sin? Does the beast pay the price of sin? Well, the beast pays something because it dies. But it doesn't pay your price for sin. Hebrews says... No, it's just a shadow of a greater reality. It's a shadow. It's a, an object lesson, a word picture for us today. It's all pointing, of course, to the ultimate sacrifice that will end all sacrifices. So I ask you again, are you beginning to see it? Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. See, it's a shadow. Not the realities themselves. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Can't get plainer than that, can you? Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. He's thinking of Aaron there. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin... He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I ask you again, can you see it? See what Leviticus says to us today, this century. But let us be discerning because some things have changed and others have not. So what has not changed? God is a holy God. What has not changed? God still sets the terms 
What else has not changed? The terms haven't changed because you still can't approach him except on the terms he lays out. You still can't approach God without the right sacrifice. And you still can't approach God without a high priest going for you. And do you know that our Lord Jesus Christ has done all of that? He's done all of that once and for all. Never to be repeated, Hebrews says. And the only reason we don't have to keep doing all that bloody stuff, because it is bloody, ordaining Old Testament priests and killing animals and using altars, the only reason you don't have to bring your best bull here with you this morning, I noticed nobody did bring their best bull, the only reason is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. See, the cross, the cross is the altar where Emmanuel died. His blood was shed so that our sin might be done away with forever, once and for all. His sacrifice was and is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And the job has been done. The job is done never to be repeated. It is finished, Jesus said. So we don't come to God with our merit list of achievements. Don't come to God with that. Don't come to God with your best efforts even. Don't come to God with other religions or other traditions or what other idea seems good to you at the time. Don't come to God like that because God sets the terms. Which means that you come through Jesus as your high priest with his life as the sacrifice or you need not come at all. They're the terms. It's fairly incredible, isn't it? That as we think about the sacrifice of the bull and putting our hands on the bull, in light of the Christ, in light of the cross, there seems to be some kind of invitation that for us to put our hands out. We don't put our hands out on a bull, but out to Jesus, don't we? As we put our hands out to Jesus, we're saying his sacrifice is my sacrifice. As we put our hands out to Jesus, we're saying... I want to identify with him and with his death. And just as surely as he died and rose again, we now live to identify with Christ, our Saviour and our King. That's pretty amazing. But here's another twist. The outrageous thing is that because of this sacrifice, Because Christ came and died, we, undeserving rebellious sinners like you and me, we can be considered as being made holy. And are in fact already holy in God's sight. More than that, in fact, the holy God of Leviticus now takes up residence in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. 
And it's all because of Christ. Today, the dwelling of God is not in a tent. It's not in a temple. It's not behind a rail. Now, by faith in Christ, the dwelling of God is now his people. In Christ, you and I, we are his holy people. We are a holy people covered by the blood of Jesus once and for all. And we show the world the goodness and grace and mercy of our holy God. So how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Have you been confronted by your sin this morning? Have you been confronted by the holiness of God? God calls us to be holy because he is holy. Holiness is of supreme importance in the life of the believer. And Leviticus is a preview, a picture of God moving his people towards holiness. Object lesson after object lesson. And I don't know about you, but doesn't this make you run to Jesus in our pursuit of holiness? Doesn't it make you want to grab hold of him big time? And doesn't it remind us that as we hold on to Jesus, as we grow in Christ, we are growing in holiness, that which God desires for us. And we worship him with gratitude and joy and thankfulness that we can live this side of the cross, that we might live holy lives that glorify our holy God. Let me finish with these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Amen.